Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. We're currently teaching through the Gospel of John. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Okay, guys, so we're in John 13. Let me go ahead and read. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him and asked Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaned back against Jesus and said, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when it has been dipped. So after he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag that Judas was, Jesus was telling him, buy something that is needed for the feast or go give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he immediately went out. It was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify himself in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, I say to you now, where I'm going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, that you also must love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but afterwards you'll follow. And Peter said, Lord, why can't I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. That's the reading of the word. Hey, we uh, mentioned, David mentioned last week that we are now in the upper room section of John. And so where we're at right now is it's the night before Jesus died. This is Passover night, and they've gathered in this upper room for a Passover meal. It's what we call the Last Supper. But the disciples didn't know that. They just thought it was a Passover. They're having a good time. Jesus is not having a good time. It says in verse 21, it says that he was troubled in his spirit. Jesus is filled with dread. And it's unexpected to them that here they are celebrating the Passover, and Jesus is acting like he's he's so upset. This word for troubled is the same Greek word that's in chapter 5 for the troubling of the pools of the water. Have you guys ever felt that? Have you ever felt that troubling feeling, that, that cold wave of dread that churns your insides? Your master, Jesus Christ, has felt that. He felt that in his life. And he also felt the loneliness of feeling that feeling while everybody around him is clueless. The loneliness of feeling that dread by himself. What caused the dread? Look at verse 21. Jesus said, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, testifying, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He's, he's troubled, he's in dread, because he knows that one of his disciples is an imposter, is a deceiver. And this imposter is about to set in motion the machinery that will bring apart Jesus' death. Jesus knows that within 24 hours, he will be betrayed, arrested, beaten, crucified, and nailed to a cross and died. 
He knows it's all going to happen in 24 hours, and it all starts with this imposter. This morning, guys, we're going to look at the world's most infamous imposter, Judas Iscariot. And even people that have never been to church, maybe there's some of you here today that have never been to church, know about Judas. Everybody in our culture knows about Judas, how he sold out Jesus, how he deceived him with a kiss and betrayed him. So Judas is this ultimate imposter. And what's, what's really fascinating is that when Jesus announces there's an imposter in the room, no one suspects Judas. Isn't that amazing? Look at verse 21. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples look at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Isn't that amazing? For three years they've been together and they have no idea it's him. In fact, if you look in the book of Mark in chapter 14, when he says this, all of them go, is it me? They would sooner suspect themselves than suspect Judas. And they go around one after another going, is it me, Lord? Is it me? Is it me? But Jesus knows who it is. If you look at verse 10, Jesus had told his disciples, you are clean, but not every one of you. He knew which one was going to betray him. You guys remember the story of uh, Julius Caesar and Brutus? It's the second most famous um, story of a betrayer. So Julius Caesar, about 44 BC, I think, somewhere around there, he gets assassinated in the Senate, and all the senators just like go after him. You think our politics are rough? <laughs> they all go after him and assassinate. It's funny now, it's been 2,000 years. Um, but they all go after him, and as they're all stabbing at him and stuff, there's one guy that stabs him as well, and it's, and it's Julius Caesar's good friend, Brutus. And you remember what he says to him? Et tu, Brute? Actually, that was um, William Shakespeare that came up with that part. But, <laughs> but he says something like, et tu, Brute? It's a statement of surprise. Even you, my friend Jude, Brutus? But this isn't the case with Jesus. Jesus isn't surprised. He's known all along that this was going to happen. He's known that Judas was not a real disciple, but an imposter. And it's important to see that because a lot of people take Judas as an example of somebody who lost their salvation. But if you look through the Gospels, you can see that he was never actually a believer. Judas was never actually somebody that knew Christ. He was always an imposter. The, the John that wrote this also wrote a couple of letters. And in 1 John, he says this about people like Judas and other people that seem to be disciples but fall away. He said this, they went out from us, but they were never really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they were never really of us. And so um, Judas here is an imposter. He's been one from the beginning. It's not that he was a believer and then lost his salvation or something. And Jesus knows he's an imposter. Peter's dying to know. Take a look at verse 23. Peter doesn't know who he's talking about. And it says in verse 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, now that's John, was reclined at table with Je at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he spoke. Now to understand this, you need to kind of understand a little bit about how they're at the table. It's not like Leonardo da Vinci, you know, where, they're at a, where he drew the Last Supper and they're all sitting up at a table like Europeans. Okay, that's just what they knew, so that's what they drew. Um, they're all reclined at table, it says. And so they would have been, it seems kind of weird to us, but there's a table and everybody's got their feet towards the outside and they're kind of laying down. And they're laying on their left arm and then they have their right arm to, to grab food and stuff. So they're reclined. And, um, and they would have been arranged, actually, in, area of, in, in order of honor. And so Peter here is asking John because John is actually at Jesus' right side. And the way we know this is Jesus is here, John's here, and we know this because what it said, the text says is that he leans back onto, onto Jesus and asks him, who is it? Okay, so he's the one close by. Peter's down the way. I don't know what he did to deserve that seat, but he's down the way, and, and he's saying, who is it? And, and John leans back like that and asks him. 
verse 25. So the disciple leaned back against Jesus and said to him, Who is it, Lord? And Jesus answered, It is he from whom I will dip this morsel of bread and give it to him. And, and Jesus, so it's interesting because Jesus doesn't shout it out. He doesn't go, it's that guy, you know? He doesn't just <laughs> point him out, right? He's much more subtle than that. He does something here that only John knows what's going on or maybe the ones right around him. Very subtle. And it's so subtle that later when Judas leaves, they don't know why he's leaving. They think that maybe he's gone out to give some money to the poor, which would have been a common thing. On Passover night, they leave the gates of the temple open, and beggars would come, and the, the pilgrims that had come to that town would come and give alms to the poor. So it made sense that that would happen. But Jesus doesn't shout it out. He does something subtle, and he takes the bread. Verse 26, when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, guys, for this to work, Judas has to be nearby, okay? And a lot of commentators have said that Judas is on the other side of Jesus, which actually is the highest place of honor at the table. Isn't this crazy? So Jesus has washed Judas' feet. Remember, he washed all their feet. He washed Judas' feet. He gives him probably the highest place of honor at the table, and now he's feeding him, his betrayer. And this is to fulfill Psalm 41.9 that says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Guys, in that culture, if you'd received hospitality from somebody, it was unthinkable that you would betray them. It was an oath of allegiance to accept their hospitality. Um, but Judas here has received three years of Jesus' hospitality and care. You know, guys, we have a saying for this in our culture, don't we? The saying is this, don't bite the hand that feeds you. Has ever heard that before? We have the same feeling too, don't we? And that's what's happening here. Jesus has washed Judas's feet, given him the place of highest honor. Now he's feeding him as he's fed him for the last three years. And this morsel that Jesus is going to give him, this morsel of bread, is Jesus's last gesture of love to Judas. It's one last appeal of grace. It's one last opportunity for Judas to be broken by Jesus' love. You think, is he going to break? Will he go, Jesus, I got to confess, I have, I planned something against you. I repent, please, you know, forgive me. Does he do that? He doesn't. Judas takes the bread from Jesus, but Judas refuses to take Jesus' love because Judas is literally hell-bent on betraying Jesus. He's going to bite the hand that feeds him. Why? You think about, like, why would he do this? I mean, he's been with Jesus all the time. He knows what he's like. Here, Jesus is being very tender with him, very gracious to him, very loving to him. Why would he do this? Guys, it's because Jesus isn't Judas's true love. Jesus's, Judas's true love is money. And we know that from chapter 12. From chapter 12, it says, that, it says that Judas was a thief, and having charge of the money back, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Do you ever wonder what he was doing with all that money? I mean, you're traveling around with Jesus, and you're stealing money the entire time. What can you spend it on? You know, you can't spend it on anything. It doesn't make any sense, does it? And now Judas plans to take a further step and sell Jesus to the religious leaders that want him dead. Do you know how much Jesus uh, will fetch for him? Do you know how much Judas is going to make selling his master? About a thousand bucks. How tragic. You know, what's he even going to do with that money? And at the, at the expense of losing Jesus. Guys, Judas wants the morsels from Jesus' table, but he does not want Jesus. And it's insane. I mean, we all think about it. It's so objectively insane to us, isn't it? It's like he's right there. Why would you do this? It's a, but guys, we do it all the time. 
right? All of our idols, the things we love more than Jesus, are insane, right? Often we'll trade Jesus for very short-term joys, morsels, guys, short-term joys that evaporate on the use. And that kind of trade is insane and it's tragic. People constantly choose morsels over the Messiah. Little morsel of money, little morsel of sexual immorality, little morsel of control. They don't want to hand their control over to Jesus. Uh, little morsel of power, little morsel of pride, maybe intellectual pride. You don't want to look stupid following Jesus. You want to look right in front of the right people and look like you know what you're talking about and that you're educated. Maybe a little morsel of false freedom. You know, you don't want to kind of give your life over to him. And all the time, guys, and when we do this, we're missing out on the true feast. Because Jesus is offering to us a never-ending, always improving relationship with him, our creator. You guys realize that the relationship with Jesus is, is ever-increasing in joy? Even in heaven, it's not like you'll get there and you go, oh, okay, seen it, done. God is infinite and we will unpeel who he is over time. Um, over billions and billions of years. We will always have new insights to see in them, new beauties to see. And every time we see that, there'll be an uptick of our joy. Isn't that amazing? So we have waiting for us. But Judas has already made his choice, hasn't he? Judas has given no as his final answer. He'll take the morsel and leave the Messiah. And in the process, Judas hands his life over completely to the enemy. This is real creepy, verse 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. So after receiving, and then verse 30 says, after receiving the morsel, Judas immediately went out and it was night. Guys, this is creepy. We've just watched a man make his final decision to reject Jesus. And when John says, he says, it was night. He doesn't just mean it was dark outside, right? It's a, it's a statement of what Judas is doing. Judas isn't just walking out into the darkness of the night. Judas is walking out into outer darkness, where Jesus said is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, in, in verse 30, he says, after receiving the morsel, he went out. It was night. Judas is the ultimate imposter. He made the worst decision anyone could ever make. And Jesus says it's better. It would have been better for him if he was never born. And I just think, man, this is heavy, right? <laughs> Happy Father's Day. <laughs> right? This is heavy. This is heavy. And you guys know what I think? You know what I think about, though, when I think about Judas? Sometimes, not always, I think about, could this be me? You ever think that? And maybe you don't. The disciples did. Disciples were like, is it me, Lord? Is it me? I wonder that. I wonder if I could be like him. I wonder if I could be an imposter, you know? Um, there's uh, uh, something I was reading this week. It's a very common syndrome called imposter syndrome. Have you guys ever heard of imposter syndrome? Imposter syndrome is characterized by a persistent fear of being exposed as a fraud. And if you look this up, you'll see there's a lot of like, famous people that have had this. Um, you think about people like, like Michelle Pfeiffer and Tina Fey and Jodie Foster. Maya Angelou, who um, is now deceased but wrote the book, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. She said this about her writing. She says, I've written 11 books, and each time I write one, I go, uh-oh. They're going to find me out now, that I've been running a game on everybody. They're going to find me out, that I'm a fake. Isn't that amazing? She has a sense that she's an imposter. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like an imposter? Have you ever felt like a fake? Maybe in your workplace, you think, man, if they really knew, I never would have been accepted in this program. I'd never be in this school. I'd never be in this class. You ever, you ever think that with your work? You ever think like, man, I think about everybody else here knows what they're doing. I don't know what I'm doing. You ever had that feeling? You ever think about that in your profession? 
You know, how did I ever become one of these? Uh, you ever think about that in your relationships? What about as a Christian? Have you ever felt that as a Christian? I think most of us have had a case of imposter syndrome from time to time. I mean, even those original disciples had it when they said, is it I, Lord? What if Jesus were here today and he said, there's an imposter in the room? Would you think of yourself, is it me? I, I, I often think that. You know, maybe you think that because of some great sin that you've committed and the guilt that follows. Maybe you think that because of your persistent doubts. I mean, I'll tell you, for me, I've wondered a lot of times, do I have real faith? I mean, guys, I doubt a lot. I have all kinds of doubts and questions, and my faith goes up and down, and my confidence in the Lord is up and down. And a lot of times when it's down, I think to myself, do I even have real faith? Or am I falling from some superficial reason, you know? I can't compare what's inside me to you, okay? So, like, I'll look at somebody and go, oh, yeah, that person's a Christian, you know? And, and I'll go, I wonder what it feels like to feel their faith. Is it like mine? I can't compare. I don't know. So it leaves me wondering, like, is my faith real? Or am I an imposter? And it's really important to talk about this, guys, because it is extremely dangerous to be an imposter. Okay? There are people on the final day that say, Lord, Lord, you know, scariest passage in the Bible, right? In Matthew 7. And they're imposters. But it's also an important question because feeling like an imposter steals your joy in Christ, doesn't it? Feeling like an imposter steals your joy in Christ, and feeling like an imposter ruins your effectiveness for the kingdom, too. It's not a healthy place for Christians to be. I mean, you read Romans 8 and passages like that that talk about calling out to God as Abba Father and having some security with him. That's what makes us effective. That's what gives us joy. But when we feel like an imposter, it erodes that. And so I want to talk this morning. I'm really hoping that what we say this morning would actually increase your confidence. Those of you who are truly believers, it would increase your confidence in Christ and make you more effective. Um, but how do we tell? How do we tell if we're imposters or not? Um, you know what psychologists do? For these people that have trouble in their work and stuff and they feel like imposters, you know what they have them do? One of the things they have them do, which I think probably works, is you do writing therapy. And so what you do is you write out all your accomplishments. So somebody like Tina Fey, right, like funniest woman on earth, and, you know, all these different things that she's done, right? And then she would look at these things, and she would go, oh, I do measure up, okay? That's not what we do as Christians, okay? That's not what I'm going to call you to do, is to make a list of your accomplishments and go, I really do measure up. That is not the way, okay? What is the way? Well, I'll tell you another way that isn't the way is we don't have our confidence because we lack some massive failure in our life. I mean, if you look at this passage, last verse that I read, Peter's about to deny Jesus three times, okay? And I think the writer here, John, has put Judas and Peter here for a reason. I think they're both here in this section so that we can compare and contrast them. So we can see Peter, real believer, failed in a huge way, actually was redeemed. You look at Judas, not a real believer, failed in a big way, went off, and never came back. What's the difference between them? I mean, Peter's sin was massive. You look at verse 38. He says, I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you deny me three times. Guys, this isn't a small failure. Jesus made very clear, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. What must have Peter been thinking when he denied him three times? And you guys realize he denied him to a servant girl. Okay, this wasn't like spears at him, nothing like that. It was to a servant girl at night. And so that's what Peter does. So both Peter and Judas sin in ways that seem relationship terminating, don't they? What's the difference? 
How do we know whether we're an imposter or not? How do we know whether we're a Peter or a Judas? I want to give you three differences. Three differences between Peter and Judas, and you can just take that to go, how do I know whether I'm an imposter or a real disciple? First one is that Peter loved and trusted Jesus. Look at verse 36. He fails at this, but listen to his heart. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Guys, for all of his fears and failures, Peter has an overwhelming desire for Jesus, doesn't he? That's the cool thing about Peter is he messes up a lot, but he constantly has a strong desire for Jesus. Back in chapter 6, when Jesus fed the 5,000, remember that? And then Jesus says this confusing stuff about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. The whole crowd leaves, right? A few disciples are left. Jesus goes, do you want to leave too? What does Peter say? Peter says this. He doesn't know what's going on either. He says, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've believed. And we've come to know that you're the Holy One of God. He's like, I don't understand it either, but I'm staying. Even with his doubts, Peter knows that he would, there is no one he'd rather be with than Jesus, and there's no master he'd rather follow. How about you? You have a persistent love for Jesus. If you have that same love and trust for Jesus, you're truly his disciple. Peter actually wrote a little bit later, he wrote a letter, and he said this in his letter, though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Do you guys find yourselves loving a person you've never seen? Okay, do you find yourself with a persistent desire to be with and a love for a person you've never seen? And do you trust that person with your life to a degree that you think it's reasonable to do anything he asks? That's supernatural. Okay, that's what Peter's talking about. You love a person you've never seen, and you've given your life to a person you've never seen. And Peter's like, well, I saw him. It's weird for you guys, you know? He's like, this is amazing. Guys, that's supernatural. Imposters don't do that. Judas didn't do that. Normal people don't have that kind of love for Jesus. That's a supernatural work. Secondly, Peter loved Jesus' people, okay? And this is a big distinction between him and Judas. Throughout Peter's life, we see him pursuing God's people in love, constantly encouraging God's people, seeking out God's people, Guys, if you search the four Gospels, you will never see Judas loving God's people. What you will find is him scolding Mary for her worship, trying to get the money that she spent on that perfume, right? If you have a persistent love for God's people, then you're a Peter, not a Judas. True disciples love other disciples. Look at verse 34. A new commandment, Jesus says, I give to you. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have a love for one another. You think, how is this a new commandment? I mean, in Leviticus, it says to love people. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. How is this new? It's new in, it's got a new example, and it's got a new motivation. Notice in this passage, he says, love one another as I've loved you. Okay? The old standard in the Old Testament, Leviticus, was love your neighbor as yourself. This standard is love Christians the way Jesus loves them. Okay, that's the new standard. And how does Jesus love us? Guys, Jesus loves us because he hasn't just offered us broken bread morsels from his table, has he? He has, on the cross, offered his own broken body for us. His body he allowed to have nailed to a cross. He paid all the debts for all of our betrayals, all of our denials, all of our failures. 
And that's the example of love we have. And not only an example of love, but also an empowerment. Because it's as we get rocked by that, guys, as we're rocked by that undeserved love of God, we share it with others who don't deserve it. You could think, well, this other believer, I don't really feel like I love him, doesn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. I'm gonna love him even though he doesn't deserve it, right? I'm gonna love him like Jesus as I'm moved by the gospel. The gospel is the thing that's gonna motivate me. How about you? Do you love Christians? Ask that question of yourself. Do you personally, I want you to really think about it. Do you love Christians? You just think, man, I love Christians. Okay, that's not normal. Can we say that very clearly in 2016? It is not normal for somebody to say, I love Christians. Okay, that is a clear sign that you're a Peter, not a Judas, if you love Christians. Our culture has an incredibly low view of Christians, and many professing Christians avoid Christians at all costs. You guys realize that? They do. They avoid Christians at all costs. They avoid church. They avoid gatherings of Christians. Why? They don't love Christians. They've taken on our culture's view of God's people. Guys, if you love Christians, that's supernatural. That's not normal. That's a sign of life. That's a sign of a true disciple. So he loves and trusts in Jesus. He loves Christians. And then the other difference between Peter and Judas is that Peter repents and turns when Judas didn't. Take a look at that. Judas betrayed Jesus, right? Peter denies Jesus three times. Both of them feel horrible afterwards, right? But their responses are completely opposite. Judas realizes the evil he's done, doesn't repent, and ends his life. Peter, when he realizes the evil he's done, returns to Jesus. You guys remember the scene in John where he returns to Jesus? It's really cool. So Peter, thinking probably he's fired and more, okay, is out in a fishing boat again, right? And Jesus has been raised from the dead, and, um, and they're, they're in the, in the, in, out in the boat. Marcelo did an awesome sermon on that a couple months ago. And then he realizes that it's Jesus on the shore talking to him. And what does he do? He dives in the water and swims to Jesus, right? He comes back to Jesus. How about you? When you're hit with the evil of your own sin, what do you do? Do you run or do you swim back to Jesus? Hebrews 4.15 says, let us then with confidence, not confidence in our own goodness, that's for sure, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That need is your sin, right? Have you guys ever thought about, I think about this Peter thing. I was thinking about this week, and I don't know if it fits or what, but I was thinking about Peter this week, and I was thinking how counterproductive it is in a holy book to have, like, one of the pillar men in your religion like Peter. Okay, like, this is super counterproductive because Peter has to live with what this book says, okay? So, Decades later, you know, they're circulating these stories. Peter's trying to lead the church. Counterproductive, okay? John the writer would never have included the failures of Peter unless, one, they happened, and two, they say something unique about Christianity. They're in here because they say something unique about the gospel message, and the gospel message is that we're accepted based on the righteousness of Jesus, not our own. And so it makes total sense when it happened to include it and to highlight it. You realize all the Gospels make a big deal of it. Why? Because this is the way we approach Jesus. We approach God by grace. And I love that God grows Peter. He doesn't stay this way. Do you guys realize this? Peter is so fearful. He lacks courage. A lot of times we beat on Peter, you know, because we don't hear the rest of the story. Look at verse 36. Jesus had said to Peter, where I'm going, you cannot come. You cannot follow me. What does the second part say? but you'll follow me afterward. You guys realize that 30 years later, 
This same Peter who denied Jesus in front of a servant girl has enough courage to die for Jesus by being crucified upside down. Afterwards, you will follow me. He preferred that. He preferred that to denying Jesus again. Guys, Jesus forgives our sin, but he also makes us new. He doesn't leave us the way we were. So this morning, we're going to take communion. And during this last song, we're going to do it where you kind of come forward, you know, as, as the last song is going, you can come forward and, and take some of the bread, which represents his body, and take the cup, which represents his blood. And communion, guys, is an awesome opportunity to return, isn't it? It's an opportunity for us to return to that first last supper, right? That first communion time, the first time they had communion, that upper room. It's a, it's a time for us to return to that. But it's also, guys, a time for us to return to Jesus himself. In a room this size, guys, there has to be some of you that, like Judas, have a decision to make. Jesus is offering you not just a morsel of bread this morning. He is offering you his very life, his own body, crucified on the cross for you. To cleanse you of sin and to give you a never-ending, always improving relationship with him. And so I just say this morning, don't just take this morsel of bread, take Jesus. You actually have an opportunity this morning, those of you who don't know Christ yet, you have an opportunity this morning to do what Judas should have done, right? Jesus confronts Judas with his sin. Judas could have responded there. He, has the same, he had the same opportunity you have right now. He could have said something like, Jesus, you're right about me. I am the betrayer. I am a sinner. Please forgive me. Help me to be your disciple, but for real this time. Help, help me to be your disciple from my heart. Guys, if you would pray that this morning, no matter what you've done, he will make you new and he'll forgive you. And for believers, we also have an opportunity to return, don't we? We have an opportunity to return like Peter did, don't we? To turn from our sin that's entangled us this week and to enjoy the presence of, God, of Christ as we take the, the bread and the cup and to be strengthened to follow more closely this week. If you're here this morning, guys, and your joy and your salvation is in Christ, we welcome you to come forward and take communion. The bread represents the broken body. The cup represents his blood spilt to make you clean. You can come forward during any point during this song. Let's pray. Father, I'll just say this for all of us, and I hope that everybody embraces it. The truth is, is that we've all been spiritual Judases. We have all at times traded your son for short-term, unfulfilling morsels of this world. Lord, we just pray, Lord, during this time of communion, during this time of worship, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to know the joy and peace and meaning that comes from surrendering, just surrendering our life to you and your son. Lord, help us as we take communion today to to spiritually be back at that first table and to not make the move of Judas, but that make the move of his true disciples and receive the grace that's there. Father, we thank you so much. You've put us at a place of honor at your table. You've washed not only our feet, but our whole bodies. And you feed us every day. Thank you so much for that. We pray, Lord, that this time of worship would be acceptable and pleasing to you, Lord. We want to be your kids. They give you joy that you delight in. We know that you are easily pleased. 
that you're a father who loves his kids and desires to just sweep us up in your arms. And we pray, Lord, that we would be kids that seek your face, that laugh and play around you, that enjoy you. Thank you for the fathers that are here, Lord. We pray that you bless them today, that they feel strong encouragement. We pray this in Jesus' name. listening to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church, Menifee. If you would like to know more about the Menifee campus, visit us online at cupgrace.org slash Menifee.